0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. Gospel of Matthew chapter 4. We'll be looking this morning at verses 1 through 11. Hear the Word of God. We'll begin reading in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. To him let us pray. Our Father, we come before your word now, needing to be fed, needing to hear from you. And so Father, we pray that you would take these words inspired by your spirit, truth itself, and teach us and feed us, and encourage us, convict us, rebuke us, train us. Father, that we might more resemble Christ, that we might live as your people in a way pleasing to you, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Could Jesus have sinned? In other words, as Jesus faced these temptations, was there the possibility That he could have said, yes, Satan. Or was it all just a charade without any real possibility that Jesus would have sinned? Well, in answering a question like that, it's always helpful to go back to what we do know, to our first principles. What do we know about Jesus? Well, we know he was fully God and fully man. He wasn't half God and half man. He was fully God And fully human. As God, could Jesus be tempted? No. In fact, the scripture is quite plain in James chapter 1, that God cannot be tempted. The things, the kinds of things that Satan brought up were were not in any way appealing or attractive to Jesus in his divine nature as a divine person. But we also know that Jesus was fully human, just like we are. And in his humanity, could Jesus experience temptation? Absolutely. Because if Jesus were human, yet could not experience temptation, then he would not be human in a way that we are. Now, Jesus did not have a sinful nature. Did that mean he couldn't sin? No. No. Adam didn't have a sinful nature. Eve did not have a sinful nature when they said yes to Satan, to the serpent, and they ate. So Jesus in his humanity experienced very real temptation. Hebrews tells us that. He was tempted in every way like we are. When Satan came to Jesus, there was something in Satan's offer that was in some way attractive to Jesus, that in some way would be appealing to him. Now, we're not saying Jesus was on the brink, Jesus was tottering, that he was on the verge of sinning and yet didn't. Jesus' answers came very quickly. And yet, the truth is, in this passage, that this was a real temptation. There was an element in everything that Satan brought up that would have been appealing, that would have been attractive to Jesus in his humanity, particularly in light of what he knew the alternative to be, namely, the cross. Well, as we come to this passage that describes a very real temptation of Jesus... We read in verse 1, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. Now, for those of you who were here last week, you'll recall that we studied the passage just prior to this, where Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, and there's this this Trinitarian manifestation of, of Jesus being there for baptism, the Holy Spirit coming down on him in the form of a dove, And then the voice of the Father from heaven who says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. You know, Matthew, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, points out this Trinitarian manifestation, revelation, and Jesus' ministry in Matthew closes with the Trinity. Remember the Great Commission in Matthew 28, going to all the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son. And of the Holy Ghost. So Jesus' ministry opens with this Trinitarian statement and it closes in Matthew with the Great Commission, again a statement of the Trinity. So having just referred to the Holy Spirit coming down on Jesus to equip and empower him in his humanity for his ministry and to set him apart for this calling to which the Father for which the Father had sent him. Then we're again referred to the Spirit here in verse 1. After his baptism, after his being set apart for his public ministry, then immediately he goes into this time of trial. The Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness for the purpose of being tempted by the devil. The slanderer is how the word could be translated, the accuser. Now, James, the passage we referred to earlier, says God is not tempted by sin, nor does he tempt anyone. And when we pray in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation. We are praying that we would not experience what Jesus experienced here, because it was the Spirit who led Jesus into the wilderness for the purpose of facing Satan, of allowing Satan to throw his worst at Jesus and to allow him to have to deal with those temptations. Now, the word tempted is a curious word because it can have a couple of meanings. One, as it's translated here, to be tempted, but it can also have the, the meaning of being tested, And perhaps you've heard that distinction that God may put us in situations where Satan might tempt us and God's purpose is to test us, and I think that's valid. We could also say that the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tested by the devil, to have the opportunity to face these temptations and to withstand them. Certainly Satan's purpose in temptation is destruction, is to lead people into evil, God's purpose in leading his son, and at times perhaps us too, into situations may be to test us, to purify us, to allow us to see what we really are made of, what it is we've got in us, where we really stand. And often it's a humbling experience because the facade of strength quickly crumbles in many situations where God may test us. We read in verse 2, After Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now we've got wilderness. We've got 40 days and 40 nights. It's number 40. And as we've said before, Matthew especially likes to depict Jesus' ministry as the new Israel. Even to the point of showing how in Jesus' ministry, there is an echo of what happened with old Israel in the Old Testament. And you recall how the Lord led Israel into the wilderness. They were there for 40 years because of their unbelief. And they underwent temptation and testing in the wilderness. And it didn't go so well. They grumbled against God. They complained. And that unbelieving generation died out. Well, Jesus does, in a very real way, recapitulate or repeat the experience of Israel. But where God's son Israel Fell and proved unfaithful wasn't up to the task in so many ways. God's son, Jesus, the new Israel, the embodiment of Israel, succeeded at every point where old Israel failed. And so it is here Jesus recapitulates that wilderness experience. And he's fasted, not for 40 years, but for 40 days, 40 nights, presumably going without food, though uh, not necessarily without water. And we read that simple statement, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. He was, he was weakened. It was a grueling, trying time in and of itself. And after he is reduced to this physically weakened condition, though perhaps spiritually strengthened, fasting being sometimes used as an expression of repentance, although not the case here, but also it is an expression of preparation, For something, which does seem to fit. He is prepared, perhaps spiritually, yet weakened physically to face these temptations, these tests to come. And sure enough, in verse 3, the tempter came to him with his first shot. In verse 3, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, Satan comes to him and says, if you are the Son of God. Now, how are we to understand that? Does Satan doubt that he is? Does Satan suspect maybe Jesus doubts that he is? Well, it seems to me best to understand this. as not bringing into question that Jesus is the Son of God, but the word could also be translated since. If it is true that in fact you are the Son of God, or since you are the Son of God, make these stones become bread. Now, Matthew's just said he was hungry. He hasn't eaten in 40 days, 40 nights. He was hungry. And the first thing Satan does is come to him and say, go ahead, command these stones to become bread. Why not? Jesus needed to eat. At some point, he was human. He had a physical body that required food. What would be wrong with using his power to create bread out of stones? Not that he needed the stones. He could have created bread out of nothing. What's wrong with that? Well, from the very outset, it needed to be established, and Jesus needed to establish in his ministry, that his purpose was not for himself. That his power was not for himself. It was not to be used frivolously, Just to exercise it at will, just to entertain people, just to draw a crowd, just to serve himself. The temptation, as we understand Jesus' response to it, particularly, the temptation was you're the Son of God. Certainly, you should be entitled to use that magnificent power to meet your own needs, to serve yourself. That was the temptation. Really, the question was not whether Jesus was the Messiah, was the Son of God. The question is, what kind of Messiah would he be? Not the nature of his identity, but the nature of his mission. Would he use his power to serve himself, or would he be, in fact, that suffering servant that we find described in Isaiah? And so Jesus responds, quoting uh, from Deuteronomy, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see, Jesus had come to suffer in obedience to the will of His Father. It was more important to Him to honor His Father and to honor the calling for which His Father had sent Him than to use His power simply to create bread to satisfy His physical hunger. In and of itself, would that have been wrong? We really can't say, but certainly in this context, certainly for Jesus simply to satisfy his own needs at this point in response to the devil's requests, yes, it certainly would have been. And Jesus points out that there's something higher, something more important, something more consuming and overriding in his life than meeting his own very real physical needs. You remember John chapter 4, where Jesus had been talking with the woman at the well. And the disciples go off to get some food and they come back and Jesus says, I have food that you don't know about. They're saying, what, could somebody beat us to him? Somebody bring him something to eat? And Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. And Jesus establishes that principle right now. This is not about Jesus. That is not about his needs. It's not about using his power to serve himself. His power was to be used in the service of others. And Jesus did, in fact, create food out of nothing when he fed the 5,000. But he didn't do it for himself. He did it because he felt compassion on these people who had been out here in the wilderness and would have a hard time finding anything to eat. It was an expression of his concern and regard for them and a sign to his disciples, not so much an effort to serve himself. And so the first temptation comes and Jesus answers it, by quoting scripture. The second temptation comes in verse 5. The devil took him to the holy city, to Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the highest place of the temple. Now, very likely where that was, was on the southeastern corner of the temple complex, on the, the portico of Solomon, a corner of the roof that was certainly high enough off the ground in its own right, but was also right on the edge of the Kidron Valley, which dropped some 450 feet. So it was a very long way from that point down to the bottom of that valley. In fact, Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, describes that very location. He said, if you were standing there looking down, and perhaps with some hyperbole here, you couldn't even see the bottom of it. He described anyone standing there looking over would feel giddy. That was Josephus. So it was certainly way up in there. air. It's a very high place. And apparently that's where the devil took Jesus. He puts him there. And again, if you are the Son of God, if this is who you are, as your baptism claims that you are and stated you to be, throw yourself down, Jesus. Just jump. It's okay. After all, your own Bible says... He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Fine, Jesus, you want to quote Bible verses? We'll, we'll play a little Bible drill here. Satan proves he can quote Scripture too. You we'll quote verses at me, Jesus? Let me quote one at you. Here, stand here, look over, jump. After all, God said he'll take care of you. God said his angels would watch over you. They would bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Let's see how much your father really loves you, Jesus. Let's see if his word can be trusted. Let's see if he'll do what he promised to do. And Jesus says to him again in verse 7, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Satan quoted Scripture, but he quoted it improperly. You look at it and, well, you know, he got the wording right, but he got the context wrong. In the context of Psalm 91, the place that the devil quotes, the point is that God does look after us, that God does protect us, that he watches over the psalmist, he watches over us. But to take that and say, okay... Let's manipulate a situation where we demand that God act is improper. By the way, that's I think one reason Jesus says, again, it is written, we might think, well, again, you know, he quoted the Bible once and again he quotes the Bible. But I think that again is with an eye toward the verse Satan quoted. Because you see, Jesus is standing on a very important interpretational principle here because he immediately recognized that while Satan quoted Scripture, he quoted it improperly because he is putting it to a use that is illegitimate. And if that is the proper use of the verse in Psalm 91 that Satan quotes, he is pitting it against the verse that Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy, again, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, as you did at Massah, when the, when the Israelites demanded that God provide water. We read about it in, in Exodus. Uh, and then in Deuteronomy, we read, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you did then, demanding of him certain things. But Jesus recognized that if on the one hand we could put God to the test, and then the Scriptures plainly say you shall not put God to the test, you have a contradiction. You see, Jesus was employing here what later theologians would call the analogy of faith, that you never interpret one portion of Scripture in such a way that it comes in conflict with another portion of Scripture. You always interpret a more difficult passage by the more plain passage. You never interpret in such a way that they are in conflict. And, And Jesus immediately recognized that Satan was misusing Scripture. Because the point of Psalm 91 is not that we should just put ourselves in all kind of danger because God said he would, but rather to walk in wisdom, to walk in obedience, and trust that, yes, if things happen in our lives, God is there with us and he will watch over us. In fact, he brings those things into our lives. And so that's why Satan says, I think countering, Or Jesus says, countering Satan's quotation of Scripture, again, Satan, in answer to your verse, it is written. And so Jesus is saying that's an illegitimate use of Scripture. We are not to put God in a position where we essentially manipulate him or demand that he act. That's an illegitimate use of that verse. And so he counters it. You shall not plain teaching. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Verse 8 Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. By the way, Luke reverses 2 and 3 from the way they are in Matthew, may suit his purposes better at that point. But here, this is the third one. All these, Satan says, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world, all their glory, if you will fall down and worship me. Wouldn't that have been a coup? Have the Lord God worshiping Satan? Well, he shows him this vista of all the world and its glory, the kingdoms, all that's out there, and says, I'll give it to you. Now, if you're thinking this morning, if you're awake, snow hasn't chilled your brain, you're wondering, who is Satan to offer the kingdoms to God? What right does he have to do that? Well, he may have more more right than you think. Remember, Ephesians chapter 2 refers to Satan as the prince of the power of, of the heir, the one who is at work here in the sons of disobedience. And in fact, when Adam and Eve obeyed Satan rather than God, they sort of threw it over to Satan's corner. There is a very real sense in which the kingdoms of this world, in their glory and what he didn't show Jesus in their sin, are under the rule of the evil one at least temporarily, and at least provisionally. Ultimately, obviously, they're under the sovereignty of God. But Satan does have some claim on the world. After all, the world threw its allegiance to him. And so Satan has some validity to his statement when he says to Jesus, I'll give you all this if you'll just bow down and worship me, if you'll just acknowledge me as your superior. You can have it all, Jesus, without the cross. you ever wonder why Jesus responded so vehemently when he described his sufferings in Matthew 16? And Peter says to him, no, no, Lord, it will never be this way. It won't happen to you this way. And he turns around and says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. The temptation to have the kingdom without the crown was appealing. And we read how Jesus shrank back that night in Gethsemane from the anticipation of that horror that he was about to endure. Satan says, "I'll just give it to you. Just one small little thing. You just get on your knees and acknowledge me as your superior. We'll call it even. Kingdoms are yours, no cross." Jesus said, "Get out of here, Satan. Go away. Be gone. For it's written, "You shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve." There's a sense in which this is the most profound because it really gets down to who is God. Who who do we listen to? Who do we obey? Whom do we obey? Adam Adam and Eve obeyed Satan. God's word, Satan's word. God's word, Satan. And they ate the fruit. Jesus said, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Again, quoting from Deuteronomy. Notice here that Jesus again quotes the scriptures. More on that in just a moment. But verse 11, the devil left him. The devil did go away because Jesus is God. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Uh, The word ministering there has the the sense in other contexts of providing food, of supplying what's needed, and perhaps feeding Jesus at that point. And that brings us to, to several thoughts I want us to think about before we close uh, first of all here, in fact, the Scriptures. And you'll notice that Jesus counters these various temptations with the Scriptures. And certainly, apart from his own obedience, that sets a very clear pattern for us of how important the Scriptures are in countering temptation in our own lives. You need to know God's Word. You need to know it certainly generally by reading it uh, in, in large Portions covering the breadth of the Bible, if not in a year, then certainly in a reasonable time every every so often that you've covered the breadth of the Bible. But it's also very helpful to memorize verses that especially address those areas in which you know that you struggle with temptation. What would Jesus do? Jesus would answer the temptation with a portion of God's word that that speaks to it. And certainly we can do no better than to know portions of God's word that address the various temptations that you face. And each of us is different. Each of us has different areas of weakness. If you'd like to know some verses, come to me. I'll help you find some that you can memorize, write down, think about and use to answer yourself, your own fallen nature, to answer the devil. When he comes, when this temptation arises, to speak God's word, which is your authority. There's power in that for you, even as Jesus answered those temptations from the word of God. There's something else here that we need to think about, and that is the nature of sin. From the beginning, from the Garden of Eden, the nature of sin has to do with doubting the goodness of God that somehow God is withholding from us what we need for life and happiness, right? Satan came there, the serpent, in Genesis chapter 3. Did God say you may not eat of any tree in the garden? and He said, no, but we can't eat from this particular tree, she adds, "You can't touch it, or we'll die. Satan said, you won't die. You see, God knows that when you eat the fruit of that tree, you'll be like God. You'll know good and evil. The implication is God's holding out on you. Sure, he said you could eat from the fruit of every tree in the garden except that one. That one tree has some good things for you that God doesn't want you to have. Sin is like that. The the power of sin is thinking that I'll be happier if I sin than I will be if I obey God. At least temporarily. We know better sometimes, but we convince ourselves otherwise. And then we live with the consequences, just as Adam and Eve lived with it. But then it comes around again, and we start believing that lie again. At each point, the implication here is that somehow Jesus, the Satan, uh, Satan says to him, somehow God's holding out on you, but I can provide for you here. It's a lie, of course. But Jesus obeyed, whereas Israel, whereas Adam and Eve did not. And in fact, the truth is that God will supply us everything that we need. As we read here, the angels came and were ministering to him. They, he had the, the approval, the blessing of his father answering the first temptation. We live by every word that comes from the mouth of God, the joy of having obeyed His Father. The angels did come and ministered to Him. And by taking this step of obedience, He was well on His way to acquiring the kingdoms of this world, not by bowing to Satan, but yes, by going to the cross, but for the joy set before Him of legitimately gaining for Himself the kingdoms of this world through His own suffering, death, and resurrection, Jesus was going to have all of this, but he wasn't going to have it by sinning. He was going to have it through his trust and obedience before his heavenly Father. You see, that's the nature of sin. It's a lie. Every time we sin, we've been duped. We've been tricked. We've been had. And Jesus exposes the lie of sin here for us and receives the blessings. He received everything that Satan promised him. Only he did it in obedience to the Father, not by sinning against his Father. You know, we're studying the Sermon on the Mount. We read how you know, the Father knows that we need food, we need clothing, we need all these things. And after all these things, the Gentiles go running. But Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things will be given to you as well. And Jesus exemplifies that for us here. Jesus was willing to seek first the kingdom, the righteousness, and the Father provided all the rest for him as well. Jesus was not willing to take a shortcut. Jesus was not willing to compromise his obedience to the Father. the, The important thing, and this really leads to the third thing I want us to think about before we close, is that Jesus certainly did this for himself, but he did it for himself for. Us. You see, when Adam sinned and fell, he sinned for himself, but he also sinned for all of us who would come after him. He was our representative, or as the theologians would call it, our federal head. He was acting on our behalf. Jesus is the second Adam. Jesus was acting on our behalf. Jesus was winning for us here the righteousness that we don't have and that we can never produce. Jesus was truly, he was really tempted here, but he also really obeyed. He did not sin, but obeyed his Father here. This was only the beginning, although a very intense beginning to his public ministry, but it set the tone early on that Jesus was committed to the suffering servant Messiah that Isaiah prophesied him to be. He was tempted, but he obeyed. He didn't sin. But he obeyed. And that's important. Because your eternal well-being and mine was hanging in the balance. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that Jesus was obedient for us. Tempted, tried, obedient. Trusting his heavenly Father. Father, we thank you that he has won for us all the righteousness that we will ever need for an eternity in heaven with you. At the same time, Father, called by his name, we want to be like him. We want to be obedient children. And so, Father, we pray that you would fill us with your spirit. We pray that you would not lead us into temptation, Lord. We don't go out looking for this kind of trial, this kind of affliction, this kind of Frontal assault from Satan himself. But Father, regardless of the temptations that we face, whatever their source, the world, our own fallen nature, the devil himself. We pray that empowered by your spirit, informed by your word. Like Jesus. We would stand. And Father, when we don't, we thank you that Jesus did.